I've preached in this church many times. I think many, many years ago, uh, in one of the services, I gave my testimony, uh, but I'm not sure how many, if any of you, were here to have heard that. But in my testimony, I recount the, the story of when I was a freshman at Bob Jones University, and one of the most influential books that I have ever read in my life, other than obviously the Bible, one of the most influential books I have ever read in my life is a book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. It might be a book that many of you are familiar with, and I would not be surprised to know if some of you have actually read that book yourself. It's a, a short little book, but it is a book that basically goes through what we refer to as the attributes of God, dealing with the various attributes of what makes God God, describing to us who God is and what God is like. I mentioned something in my opening prayer of God being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That simply is the answer to the question of the catechism, what is God? Well, God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that is true about him, his being, wisdom, justice, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. But as I was reading that book by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, I was struck and impressed with the fact that God is big. That sounds like a very simple thing to say, God is big, and it sounds a very obvious thing to say, because you all already know that God is big. I already knew that. I was saved when I was seven, grew up in a Christian home, had been a missionary kid for a time. My grandparents were missionaries and grew up in church, was at church literally every Sunday. And I already knew that God was big. I knew that. But as I began to read and study more of the truth of who God is, I was just simply impressed more and more with the greatness and the majesty and the splendor of God. We serve a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Well, as I continue to study the attributes of God and in that college setting at Bob Jones, being a Bible major and studying more and more theology and reading theology books, and I learned many new things. One of the things that I remember learning specifically that to me came as something new, but I guess it's something that I had always known but really not given much thought to, is that when we talk about the attributes of God, we often think of those in terms of the attributes of God, the Father. And we tend in our mind, this is not a right thing to do, but we tend in our mind to put something of a hierarchy in the Godhead. That there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. As if these are three different levels. God the Father is in charge God the Son does everything that the Father tells him to do, and the Spirit does everything that the Father and the Son tell him to do. As if the Father's in charge, the Son is second in command, and the Holy Spirit is third in command. That, that is not a correct understanding of the Godhead. That is actually false doctrine, and it's not the way that we are to understand who God is. When we talk about the attributes of God, and we say that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, Yes, God the Father is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. But Jesus Christ the Son is also infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And the Holy Spirit is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There is one God. And so when we talk about the attributes of God, we are speaking of really the attributes of the Godhead. And all of those great truths apply also to the Son. Now we've read from Isaiah chapter 42. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah presents Christ as 
the servant of the Lord. Uh, We'll look later at a passage in the New Testament that makes it undeniably clear that what we read here in Isaiah 42 is in fact referring to Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. And we'll, we'll in a few moments break down verse number one and see all these different truths about him. But what I want to do this morning is draw your attention to one particular phrase that is in our reading for this morning. I want you to look at the beginning of verse number four. I want you to see a statement that is made in Scripture about Jesus Christ that is a statement that I believe is absolutely amazing. Jesus Christ, look with me at the beginning of verse number four, shall not fail nor be discouraged. When we think about the greatness of our God, And the greatness specifically this morning, the greatness of Jesus Christ, this is one aspect of who he is that, if I can use a popular phrase of today, blows our mind. That Jesus Christ cannot fail nor be discouraged. So I want to preach to you this morning from this particular phrase And I want you to see three things about this phrase. But the first thing that I want us to consider this morning as we think on this phrase, that Jesus Christ cannot fail or be discouraged. The first thing I want you to think about is the fact that what we have before us here is simply a very amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. And I say that it's amazing for a few reasons. The first reason that I find this so amazing, and I believe you will find this amazing when I tell you, It's amazing compared with our experience. This sounds like something that I don't know about. Because if I look back at my life, I've failed many times. And I've been discouraged many times. Maybe this morning as you sit in church, You've already run through your mind since you've been awake today. Past failures, past discouragements, maybe present failures, and maybe present discouragements. We as fallen humanity, we know much failure and we know much discouragement. There's many things around us that discourage us. But yet when we read of Christ in the Bible, we read something that is so foreign to our experience. We we read about one who cannot fail and one who is never discouraged. That's amazing. It's amazing when you compare that to our experience. Because for us, it doesn't take much. You can go home and open your checkbook and look at your bank balance and get discouraged. You go to work tomorrow and have to deal with an ungodly boss and get discouraged. You go back and there's that conflict with that one coworker that's discouraging. It's hard. We have failures on different levels, the, the worst of which are personal failures, moral failures. Sin, we fall into that. We're guilty of these things. Yet when we read of Christ, he cannot fail. And he's not discouraged. So it's amazing when you compare it to our experience. But it's also amazing to read this truth of Christ when you consider all the opposition that he faces. Christ, as the servant of the Lord faces, and and specifically as he was here on this earth, faced the full opposition of Satan himself. You'll remember from the account in the Gospels that it was right after Christ was baptized there by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He came up out of the water and the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And right after that, the Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days. At the end of that time, he was tempted. He was tempted at all points like as we are, yet with no sin. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So in that way, tempted in all points that a person can be tempted. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And Satan came against him. And Satan tried to get him to sin. But yet Christ, as the impeccable Son of God, had no sin, knew no sin, had no desire after sin. And with all the opposition of hell itself, Christ did not fail. Christ did not fall into sin. But instead, as the temptation came, Christ responded to that temptation with the words that you know. Thus saith the Lord. The Bible says. And in every response, Christ simply quoted from the book of Deuteronomy to combat the onslaught of the enemy. And with all this opposition, and as Christ went on through the rest of his ministry, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they constantly were coming to him with these questions. Planned questions. Questions designed by lawyers to try to trick him and trip him up and get him to say something wrong. There was one time he, they, they brought this woman that they had caught in adultery and they thought, well, now surely we've got him. And all this opposition that our Savior faced and not once did he fall. Not once was his plan discouraged. Not once was his plan overthrown. But we live in a day now where the opposition against the gospel from my perspective, it's greater than it's ever been. I mean, I've not lived all that long. But it's greater than it's ever been. The opposition to the things of Christ. From government to society to the workplace. An onslaught against the things of Christ. Against the things of the gospel. Much opposition. But even with all that opposition, what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42 and verse 4, what Isaiah wrote 2,800 years ago, is as true today as it was 2,800 years ago. Jesus Christ cannot fail or be discouraged, despite the opposition. But it's also amazing when you consider what it is Christ has to work with, he cannot fail or be discouraged. When I was at Bob Jones, I, I think it was between my sophomore and junior year uh, of college, my dad got me a job at this manufacturing plant. Uh, they made metal pieces and end caps that you see at the grocery store, like you, you get to the end of the aisle and there's the Keebler cookie little display with all the cookies around it and little Debbie snack cake displays, these metal things. And so this plant made those and I worked in the packing department. And they would have pallets down this long conveyor belt and they would put a box at the beginning and my job at the beginning was to turn around and pick up a piece out of this big box and put it in that little box. And the conveyor belt moved. And I, I picked up another piece. And I put it in. I picked up another piece. And I put it in. A trained monkey could do this job. Now, it, it, was, it was mindless, brain dead work. But yet we would have people come into that plant. And in 10 minutes they'd ask where the bathroom was. And they'd just walk to their car. And they would just leave. They, they wouldn't stay. Not even a whole day. Not even half a day. They didn't even make it to lunch. Well, the summer progressed on, and after about two months or so of the summer, 
the only person that had been there longer than me was my supervisor of a crew of about 35 people. Only my supervisor had been there longer than me. I had seniority in the department. It was a 19-year-old college kid. Well, they pulled me off of the line and put me with a smaller packing division and put me in charge of six or eight other people that were packing more specialized things that weren't on a conveyor belt. And I remember going to my supervisor and asking him, where do you get these people? Where do these workers come from? They're, they're worthless. Right? They, they, they have no work ethic. They, they seem to have no skills. They seem to have no abilities. And I was frustrated. Maybe you work in a place like that and you have to deal with people like that. Well, you take that silly illustration and multiply it a million times. How frustrated, how frustrated does the Lord, if I can speak as a fool and still respectively, how frustrated must the Lord be with us, with what he has to work with? How often do we fail him? How often do we, because of our sin, because of our laziness, because how often do we just mess everything up? From our, from our perspective, right? From our perspective, we just mess everything up. We do it wrong. We say the wrong thing. We have the wrong attitude. We don't treat people the right way. We're not kind like we ought to be. We're not generous like we ought to be. We're not loving. We're so selfish. We have all these problems. But yet the Lord has chosen to use us. He's chosen to use means. He's chosen to employ us as his servants. And if anybody in the world has a right to be frustrated, it's the God of heaven. Because we're worthless, left to ourselves. But yet here we read of Christ, he cannot fail or be discouraged, even with the miserable tools that he has to work with in his kingdom. He still doesn't fail. He still doesn't discourage. He's still not discouraged. Because you see the Lord in his grand sovereignty. If I can put it to you this way. Has already factored that part into his plan. Because you see his plan. Is not necessarily ours. We have our ideas to how things should play out. We have our idea as to how an order of events should be. And we have our idea of what the future is. But you know, the Lord might have a very different end goal than what we have. You consider the sickness. You, you consider, uh, just as, as an example, you consider uh, the health of a loved one. Have you ever thought that that health problem in a, in a loved one, is it to sanctify them? I would say absolutely. But have you ever thought that that might be for you too? That might be for your faith, for your own trial and difficulty, a test in your own heart. Will you trust the Lord? Will you seek him? You know, Job had a lot of problems. If Job were alive today, Job would be given a set of essential oils. Job would be recommended a vegan diet. Job would be recommended a gym membership to fix all of Job's problems. Right? But we know Job's problems didn't have anything to do with any of those things. Job's problems were 100% a test from the God of heaven. That was it. That was all it was. It didn't have anything to do with diet. It didn't have anything to do with health. It didn't have anything to do with environment. It didn't have anything to do with anything else. But it was God who was working in Job's heart to try him. That on the other side, he would come forth as gold. That's what God was doing in Job's heart. And his friends come. And his friends have all these ideas. 
And they're just all wrong. They're dead wrong. They're not even close to right of what Job's problem is. But you see, the Lord in all of the circumstances of our life, he is sovereignly ruling over all of those things. And even our sin, even our failure, even our shortcomings, the Lord uses for his own good purposes. He will not fail and he will not be discouraged. I can use a biblical illustration here besides Job. You think about Peter. The Lord told Peter, Peter, you're going to fail. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. It's not that he just told Peter he was going to fail. He told Peter exactly what was going to happen. And what did Peter do? Peter failed. But then Peter went out, he wept bitterly. And later, Peter tells us that the trial of your faith worketh patience. Peter, Peter, later in his epistles, I believe, has something of that failure in the back of his mind. And if you were to talk to Peter, you know, I believe there were times that Peter put his head on his pillow at night And thought to himself, how could I have done that? How could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so so faithless? How could I have failed so miserably? But I would submit to you that that failure of Peter in that moment, when the dust settled, years later, Peter looked back on that experience. And I bet he wouldn't trade it for a million bucks. Because the Lord used that in Peter's heart in a way that nothing else, humanly speaking, nothing else could have worked in Peter's life. Peter was changed in the aftermath Because Christ said, Peter, you're you're going to fall, but I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. Well, the Lord does that for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us that our faith fail not. We are kept by the power of God. But you see, even in all of our failures, the Lord factors all that in. It's all part of a bigger plan. Does that excuse our sin? Absolutely not. not. Not in the slightest way does it excuse our sin. We're responsible for our own sins. And we ought not sin. But there's a sovereign God in heaven. Who in the midst of all of that. Cannot fail. And cannot be discouraged. That makes this statement amazing. But I want to move on to a second thing. <laughs> This morning, and consider with you the cause of this statement. How can this be true that Jesus cannot fail or be discouraged? And I think verse 1 really gives us the answer to that. And I told you earlier that I would read to you a passage in the Gospels that makes it undeniably clear that this passage is actually referring to Jesus Christ. There, There can be no doubt, as the Bible interprets itself, that we are talking about Jesus here. Okay, so Matthew chapter 12, you you can turn there. I'm going to read it to you. Matthew chapter 12, verse 17 says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till, his, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So here the New Testament gives us a, a divinely inspired interpretation of exactly what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah is prophesying of the coming Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew records this for us in his gospel that what Isaiah was talking about is in fact Jesus. 
And so how is it that we can read here that Jesus cannot fail or be discouraged? And I say verse 1 answers that. The first reason, the first cause of the truth of this statement is because Christ is God's servant. Behold my servant. In a very special and peculiar way, Christ is God's servant. All through Christ's ministry, you, you can read it over and over in the Gospels. Christ says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Christ was a servant. Christ, Christ did not come with his own agenda. He didn't come with anything in conflict with the Father's agenda, mind you. But, but he, he didn't come with his own agenda. He came simply to fulfill the will of the Father. To do what his master had sent him to do. And as God's servant, he cannot fail or be discouraged. Now that can't be a full answer because you and I as believers in Christ, we are servants of the Lord as well. I'm the Lord's servant. You as, as a Christian are the Lord's servant. But yet you fail. And you get discouraged. And I fail and I get discouraged. And so this can't be the full reason. But verse 1 goes on. He's not only the Lord's servant, but Christ is specifically and uniquely upheld by God. Behold my servant whom I uphold. You see in verse 1. Christ cannot fail or be discouraged because he has the full strength of divine omnipotence holding him up. This same word that's used in Isaiah 42 verse 1 is the same word that's used of Aaron and her when they hold up the hands of Moses. This is the imagery. Moses, his hands got tired. If Aaron and her had not been there, Moses' hands would have fallen. But they held up his hands. And in this way, Christ is upheld by the divine omnipotence of heaven. There is an unmovable foundation under him. Again, this, this adds to the picture of our understanding of why it is that Christ cannot fail or be discouraged. But you and I are also upheld by God. We are upheld by the everlasting arms. But yet we fail and we're discouraged. And so there's more about Christ that is true. So verse 1 goes on. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. Christ is especially chosen by God. Christ was chosen by God specifically to carry out this work of redemption. There was no one else that could carry out this work. No angel could do this because no angel could take to itself humanity. The angel was already a created being. The angels were already finite beings. But Jesus Christ being the infinite, eternal and unchangeable son of God took to himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, humbled himself even to death on the cross. And so Jesus Christ as the infinite, eternal and unchangeable God could fully represent God to men. And then taking to himself our humanity, could represent man to God. And he could be, and he is still, a true mediator between God and men. He's the only mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And in that way, he was specifically elect by the Father for this work of redemption. And this gets us a lot closer to the answer to our question. How is it that Christ cannot fail or be discouraged? But when we say that Christ is the elect of God, when we talk about Christ being the elect of God, we talk about that in, a, in really a different way than you and I are the elect of God. I'm elect. I've been chosen. But if you pay very close attention to the words of Scripture, I have been chosen and you are chosen 
in him. We are chosen, we are elect in Christ. Christ is the elect one, and we are elect in him. There's a very real sense, and this gets to the very heart of what we refer to as covenant theology. There's a very real sense in which throughout the history of all of mankind, the history of redemption, God has dealt with two men, and that's all. There's a sense in the theology of redemption that God has dealt with two men. He dealt with Adam, and he dealt with Christ. He dealt with Adam, who was the first man. He dealt with Christ, who is the second man, who is the last Adam. In the book of Romans, Paul makes this abundantly clear in our understanding because, I'm sorry, not in the book of Romans, in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes this statement, in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. And what Paul means by what he says there is you are, when you are born, you are born in Adam. Adam is what we refer to as your federal head. Adam is the father of us all. We receive our sin nature from Adam. We all have sinned in him. We are guilty of that original sin of Adam. And if you live all your days and you die still in Adam, in Adam, all die. There is eternal death in Adam. But it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit when you are regenerated, you are taken out of Adam and you are placed in Christ. You are in him. You are chosen in him, in Christ. In Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam, you're guilty of sin, punishment, and death. But Christ, the last Adam, the the second man, Christ took all that penalty to himself. He bore all the wrath and penalty of God in himself. But Christ in his life lived out a perfect righteousness, earned A perfect righteousness that is imputed to those that are in him. And so as God views you, he views you in Christ. He doesn't view me on my own merits at all. If he were to view me on my own merits, I would be lost eternally in hell. But I am viewed, I am seen by the Father in Christ. And therefore God treats me in the gospel. He treats me as he treats his son. What Christ has earned is mine by imputation. And if you're a believer in Christ, you've been born again, that righteousness is imputed to you. The very moment... Okay, the very moment that God rejects Christ is the moment that he will reject you. You cannot be rejected. You cannot be cast away. You cannot be put aside if you are in him, if you are in Christ. And so this really gets to the whole heart of what we're talking about. Christ cannot fail or be discouraged. Because he is the one chosen of God to be the mediator of our redemption. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on. He's chosen by God, but also we see he, God specifically delights in Christ. We read in the Gospels a few times. Behold, my, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God takes a special delight in Christ. We're not too terribly far removed from Christmas. Uh, Maybe 
children or grandchildren you gave presents to. And you know the price tag of those things. You know, I give my youngest kid a box of Legos, and I know that I got it from Walmart for 10 bucks. Right? It, it's not really that much, not a big deal. But man, he opens those Legos, and you thought he was given a million dollars. Right? It had such. He opens it. I love when little kids, right? Normally this stops about seven years old or so, but, but they'll open the present and they'll look at it. I've wanted this my whole life. Well, I mean, you've only lived five years. What do you mean? Right? Wanted this. You know, and, and this is so precious and so valuable to them. Well, then you take me. I don't really get all that excited by a $10 box of Legos. Right? The older you are, the more expensive your toys get. I've got my oldest son here, and his toys are more expensive than $10 Legos. But I, I say all that to illustrate the point that simply we value things that we believe have intrinsic worth. Right? I remember a little kid coming to me at church. This has been maybe almost a year ago now. He came with a half dollar. And if you do any coin collecting, you know that there are some half dollars out there pre-1964 that are silver, and they have some intrinsic value. Their silver content makes them worth way more than 50 cents. Right? They, they have, they have a, a nuministic, is that the word for coin collecting? A nuministic value. As, I'm not using the right word. But they have a value as the coin that they are. It could be a certain print year from a certain mint. Well, he had like a 1998 half dollar. And he told me it was worth over $100. And I said, Caleb, it, it's worth 50 cents. Right? It's a half dollar. It's worth 50 cents. And no, 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 no. And he was trying to tell me all these reasons. But he thought it had some value. And it really did. And, and as we get older, we understand the value of some things. Well, in theology, if I can make a transition here back, back to our point. In theology, one of the words we use about God, and when we talk about the attributes of God, is the word aseity. We talk about the aseity of God. And what that means, simply, is that God is completely self-existent. It's very difficult for us to understand and comprehend what this means, because we don't know anything that is self-existent other than God. He, God is the only thing that is self-existent. You and I, we need water. We need oxygen. We need clothing. We need shelter. We've got a long list of things that contribute to our existence. And so if you stop water, you stop oxygen... You stop all these things, you will no longer exist. Right? Your, your body, you will die. Well, God, when we talk about the aseity of God, God needs nothing. There is nothing that contributes to God. There is nothing that makes God godlier. Right? That, that's not a thing. He is God. He can't be more God. He can never be less God. He is completely self-existent. He needs nothing. Nothing adds value to him. Therefore, God does not need to delight in anything. Because he is perfectly satisfied with himself. He needs nothing. It is a false view to say that God, you may have heard this before, that God created mankind because he needed someone to fellowship with well that's simply not the truth because god doesn't need anything as soon as you say god needs something then you have said something that is false and you have it's unorthodox right it's just not right god needs nothing he does not need to delight in anything but yet he chooses to delight in his son his son brings him pleasure. Now, if I can tie these two things together, the $10 box of Legos, 
That brings a child pleasure. My new fancy electronic, whatever I got, that brings me pleasure. What value must there be in Christ that he brings the Father pleasure? God delights in him. And here is where in the gospel it gets even better. You and I are in him. We are in Christ. And so for that reason, we can read in Psalm 149 and verse 4, for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. And the only way that that can be true is as we are in Christ. And the Lord takes pleasure in Christ. And therefore he takes pleasure in all those that belong to Christ. And as you are in Christ, you bring pleasure to God. So much for that in Zephaniah, we read that the Lord sings over us. He is pleased with us because of Christ. And then we read also in verse number one here that Christ has the power of the spirit without measure. You and I have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, but Christ had the the spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Part of his being upheld by God was the power of the Holy Spirit. When he was in the wilderness, he was led of the spirit into the wilderness. He was upheld by the spirit in the wilderness. He had that power of the Holy Spirit without measure. And because of that, he shall not fail or be discouraged. And so we see that it's an amazing statement. I've tried to answer the question as to the reason for this statement, the cause of it. How can this be true? But I want to come finally as we bring the message to a close this morning, finally to the guarantee of this statement. If I could answer the question, what difference does it make? That Christ cannot fail or be discouraged. How does that help me? How does that help you? How can you use this tomorrow at work to know that Christ cannot fail or be discouraged? Well, first of all, if Christ cannot fail or be discouraged, then we can rest assured that Christ will prevail in the salvation of our souls. He cannot fail or be discouraged. That work of redemption that Christ has accomplished already on the cross is a work that cannot fail and it cannot be discouraged. That work cannot be undone. It can't be overthrown. Nothing can be put to it. There were, there were many times that that work of redemption um, uh, was sought to be overthrown. There were a couple times we read in the Gospels where Christ was, was basically bombarded by this crowd. Uh, there's one in Luke where he was run out of the city. The crowd basically chases him out of the city. And their effort is to, to cast him over the side of this cliff, over this precipice to his death. It's amazing what the Bible says. Christ escaped from the midst of them. He just walked away. With this angry mob trying to kill him. And he just, by a sheer miracle, was able to escape and, and leave. But there were efforts made to prevent the cross. Efforts made to kill Christ before he ever got to the cross. And that would not have accomplished our redemption. It would not have fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so in what was leading up to our salvation... Nothing caused it to fail. The efforts of Christ were never discouraged. And so Christ will continue to work out that plan of redemption. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. He, as our mediator, as our intercessor, he is there to intercede for us. And his intercession can't fail. That can't be discouraged. When we get to heaven we'll find that through the history of time, nothing of it has ever failed or, or been discouraged. We look around us, we see all kinds of failure, we see all kinds of discouragements, we see all kinds of things that from our perspective and our understanding, they didn't go to according to plan. 
But that's just it. They didn't go according to our plan. But Christ has not failed. He's not discouraged. Christ will prevail in bringing to pass all of his promises. If Christ cannot fail or be discouraged, then all the promises that we read of in the scriptures that are to us as believers, those promises cannot fail. So when we read, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it, Christ is not going to fail in fulfilling that. When we read that he will supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus, that can't fail or be discouraged. Now, where the rub comes is there's a lot of things that we think we need that we don't need. But yet the Bible tells us that God knows what things ye have need of before you ask him. He knows our needs. He's able to separate needs from wants. We're not very good at that. I've got a bad wanter. I want a lot of stuff. I want a lot of stuff that I can't afford to have. But yet I have everything that I need. So how do you know you have everything you need? Well, because the Lord says he'll supply all my needs. So I've got everything I need. Let's just be very blunt here. Do I need to live to the end of this day? I don't know. If I need to, the Lord will preserve me to the end of this day. If I don't need to, then I'll go to glory. Does your grandma need to survive that operation? I don't know. The Lord knows. That sounds pretty blunt, doesn't it? It sounds brash to say it that way. But the Lord knows what we need. He knows what is needful. It is sometimes more needful to stop your work and read your Bible. Mary chose that better part. Martha was cumbered about much serving. Mary chose what was better, what was more needful. Paul wanted to die. He wanted to go to heaven. But the Lord said, no, Paul, it's more needful for you to stay and for you to keep preaching. That was more needful. And so the Lord knows what we need. We know what we want. God knows what we need. And so part of your, your spiritual growth and maturity is when that want and need understanding becomes more clear to you. And you have a greater sense of the will of God for your needs and a greater faith and trust that God will supply all of those needs. He will give you what you need. Christ cannot fail in accomplishing those purposes. Everything will go according to plan. And so we can rejoice in a, a savior, in a redeemer who cannot fail or be discouraged. In, in a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. I may say a few more words later on, but just as kind of a segue to the Lord's table at this point. When we come around the Lord's table, we're coming to celebrate in many ways this very truth. Christ took that bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. He, he passed the cup. This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood that shed for you. Well, Christ did that. Christ told his disciples all of these things before his body was broken. And before his blood was shed. But yet Christ did it as an object lesson to them. Of what was just over the horizon. What was just about to come. And everything that Christ said came to pass. His body was broken. And his blood was shed. And he cried it is finished. 
And then in three days, he rose again. And he said, I'm not going to drink from the cup until I drink it with you in, in heaven, in, in the kingdom, in glory. This, this fellowship meal at the, at the Lord's table, the communion table, is proof that Christ did not fail. And his plans weren't discouraged. But he accomplished all that the Father had given him to do. At the very beginning, when the angel told Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And the reason, the reason for that name Jesus is because he shall save his people from their sins. That's the reason he came. He came because he was going to save his people from their sins. And he didn't fail. And he wasn't discouraged. And we can greatly rejoice in our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you this morning for the great truth that we have from your word. uh, That we serve a sovereign God. We serve a sovereign Christ who cannot fail or be discouraged. We take these words as great comforts to our own heart because we so often fail and we're so often discouraged. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we're found in Christ. And in Christ, we can't fail or be discouraged. And the purposes that you have for us cannot fail or be discouraged. What the future holds, we pray that you would help us to trust you for those things, knowing that we're serving one who cannot fail or be discouraged. So we pray for help. We pray that you'll bless us as we come around this table now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.